Welcome to this episode of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW 107.7 FM, as well as YouTube. I am your host, Olga Peters, and I would like to welcome to the show regular contributor, Emily Kornheiser, as well as our guest, Senator Becca Ballant for Wyndham County. Hello, Becca. Good morning. I feel like I haven't seen you forever. I'm sure uh, Emily has seen you with work days and such, but it's good to see you after many, many weeks. Yes, nice to see you as well. <laughs> so I want to start with an issue that Becca brought to my attention. Um, I admit sometimes I'm so in the Wyndham County bubble for the commons that I forget <laughs> about other things. Um, and this was about stockpiling resources, which I think we're kind of familiar with, but you talk specifically about certain types of, of uh, medications. So could yes. you tell us about that, Becca? Sure. So yesterday I got um, a rather distressing email from a constituent who has um, rheumatoid arthritis, and she was contacting me because the medicine that she's been on for many, many years um, that helps to treat her symptoms um, is no longer available. And she went to her, this is a common drug, uh, make sure I get the name right, it's um, hydroxychloroquine. Mm. And it's used for rheumatoid arthritis, it's used for malaria, it's used for lupus, and so a lot of autoimmune issues. And she went to get the prescription from her doctor and then went to the pharmacist and the pharmacist here in town said, I can't get it for you anymore. And she said, what are you talking about? I, you know, why can't you fill my prescription like you always do? And, and he said that the Trump administration was stockpiling it because there was, and I, I don't use this word lightly, that there is a rumor that it might actually be uh, helpful in alleviating some symptoms from COVID-19. There is no evidence of this. There are no peer-reviewed tests. There are, in fact, no tests at all. It is just anecdotal evidence that it might, in some people, offer some kind of relief, and it has never been shown to actually be effective. But so now you've got the Trump administration stockpiling millions of these pills to the detriment of our constituents here and people all over the nation that deal with these issues. And I just it was so frustrating for me to be able to tell her, first of all, I as a state senator can't do anything, but I can put you in touch with our federal delegation. And so I put her right in touch with somebody from uh, Senator Leahy's office who's, who's on it and trying to help her. But in talking with this woman from Leahy's office, there are people all over Vermont who are in the same situation. And I feel like the news is missing this critical piece that you know you've got plenty of people writing op-eds about how You've got Trump constantly chasing these unicorns, like there's going to be some kind of magic bullet. But when we bring it down to actual individuals, this is what it means when you have somebody at the top who is incompetent and doesn't think carefully about how it affects real people on the ground. So it is, um, it's really sad and it's really frustrating. Do we know, Becca, if there are, it sounds like there's other autoimmune related medication that's being stockpiled as well. They're all, they're medications that are in the same family as this one that I mentioned. And so I believe the, the Trump administration is stockpiling two specifically, and it's the, the ones that are um, the most frequently prescribed for these particular um, conditions. And so I think we're seeing so profoundly 
what it means to have someone who doesn't believe in science, who doesn't trust the experts, who believes that there is um, just showmanship that is all that Americans care about. And we'll just get through on, on showmanship and, and ratings for, for his press conferences. And I think we, we sometimes get so caught up in the farce of it that we forget it's actually impacting real people on the ground. And in his talking point for the last week and a half on this issue was, what do we have to lose? Why aren't we trying this? What do we have to lose? And what we have to lose is the health of people here that we know, our neighbors, our family members who can't get these medications. And it's, it's, it's absolutely uh, a travesty of justice. It really is. So and what we talked about last week was the federal administration's um, reneging on a responsibility regarding, right. you know, distribution of supplies. And this is another way that basically the hoarding of supplies is affecting people's day-to-day -day life and ability to maintain their health. Yeah. And I, th if I think about it on the global scale, you know, these medications start as malaria medications and mm -hmm. have increasingly been used towards other autoimmune diseases, but. Mm -hmm. If we look at the impacts on the global south, where people are taking these malaria medications regularly in order to prevent chronic diseases, um, right. that's enormous. And starting to hear conversations about if we are going to test for COVID medications, that those tests seem to be guided towards the global south as well as sort of you know the next round in um, generations mm -hmm. of using those countries for medical testing. And that's, mm -hmm. yeah also very scary. So I, I want to bring this back because um, this is just me personally. I hate feeling helpless. And so I'm always like, what yeah. can I do? What can I do? <laughs> so it brings me back to this relationship between the states and the federal government, which I think are being mm -hmm. really tested right now, mm -hmm. uh, mainly for all the reasons you mentioned, Becca. Yes. Um, yeah. But you know, when I was talking to Meg Mott for another article recently, mm -hmm. we, we went into depth about the state's original um, duty and mm -hmm. to protect. And she calls it the mm -hmm. duty to protect. Some people call it the policing authority. Um, mm -hmm. But in, in our breakdown of federal versus state powers, the state's first primary duty, as far as Meg Mott's concerned, constitutionally is protecting mm -hmm. its people. Mm -hmm. So since something that the federal government is doing right now is not protecting mm -hmm. people on a state level, whether it's it's hoarding uh, the medications or hoarding masks, or I, sh I guess I should use the proper words, stockpiling, um, to be Oh, polite. oh it's hoarding. <laughs> call, it, call it what it really is. It makes things simpler, Olga. It's we were working. wondering where all our toilet paper was. It's actually in Florida at Mar-a-Lago, Mar right? Um, so can, does that give states more power to say to the government, look, we need to protect our people. Cough the stuff up. Get it out here. Get it to New York. Get it to Vermont. Get it to wherever it's needed. Well, I'm going to let me take that and then I'll jump in. Okay. <laughs> Um, thanks, Becca. I, we don't have the power to really do that. Um, so we can, you know, yell and write letters, right, to the president. Um, and we've been doing that about a wide variety of things, um, sometimes more effectively than others. What I do see happening um, that I think has been happening slowly for a long time is the state sort of taking responsibilities to come together on their own. 
So, you know, we see California shipping um, hospital equipment to New York and sort of leaving the federal government's distribution pathways out of that. And I think that's highlights a process that's been happening where we sort of are passing a series of legislation on the state level um, over the last few years to really say, can we build capacity here so, and to ignore what's happening on the federal level. Um, and so I see us doing that much more practically now. Um, if we lived in a state that perhaps was producing a lot of pharmaceuticals, I think perhaps we would have greater control there. Um, but Vermont is deeply connected to all of the other places. What do you think, Becca? So I think Emily brings up a good point as our, our choices are limited. And so we have seen in the last few weeks some incredible leadership from the states. And although it's heartening, I think with, with every statement that a governor makes that is showing leadership, it is showing currently uh, the irrelevance of the federal government and its ability to lead right now because of, of, of who is in that position and, and who he's surrounded himself with. And that is a very sad condition we find ourselves in. I wanna give a very explicit um, bit of praise to our governor. Despite the fact that we are of different parties, he and his administration have been completely and totally tied to science and advisors who know what they're talking about and who he's listening to and he's following their lead. And um, last week when it was clear that the Trump administration was not using its federal authority to dictate that companies start producing more N95 masks and more ventilators. Now I reached out to the governor privately through his team to say, would you as a Republican governor make a statement calling on the Trump administration to use this authority? And he did, Governor Scott did. And that is, it's easy for a Democratic governor to do that. It's not as easy for a Republican governor to do that because he doesn't want to lose his channels to be able to get what he needs, you know? And I think that's what's been so pitiful to watch is governors like Cuomo in New York and the governor of Michigan feeling like they're competing with each other to get what they need and then you have somebody like Jared Kushner saying, oh, well, the national stockpile is not actually for the states. The national stockpile is for the federal government, which really, a, it, it exists to serve the states. What is the federal no government sense. not to serve the states, yeah. right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, just how big did your head explode when, when, um, when that statement was made? I, I have no head left though. It's just a little nubbin. This is actually a paper mache mask covering up. My forehead is complete. See, if I was to turn a profile, I would have none because I've been That's banging right. my head on the desk for, yeah. <laughs> for weeks and, now. And so we, I think we as legislators have to look to, to each other and to um, other people in state governments across this nation who are really showing what it is to lead. And there have been so many, <laughs> so many dark times the last few weeks and so many really funny times. I don't know if you, you heard Olga, um, John Dillon from BPR did a piece a couple weeks ago 
uh, where he, he pieced together all these snippets of conference calls. Did you see it? <laughs> I did I mean, not see that. You didn't? No, it oh, sounds it's very treasure. fun. It's, it's, a it's a treasure. <laughs> and, and so I was thinking about the our learning arc. So when we first tried to legislate in a different way through this crisis, <laughs> the level of incompetence just on using mute and unmute <laughs> functions, you know, is astounding. And then I thought about how, you know, in about a half hour, we're going to go live uh, doing our first round of remote voting in the Senate and how much people have really stepped up. They've figured out, like, we have to do this. The federal government is not some, you know, it's not some entity that's going to be able to show leadership at this time. So we have to do it. And it's terrifying. And it's also really beautiful at the same time. Mm -hmm. So before we we go on, I, I do want to check in with Emily, see if there's anything she wants to add. But before we do that, I'm still thinking about people um, who are not getting the medication they need. Um, while Leahy's office is working on trying to get that particular medication released, yeah. Do these folks have backup medications? I mean, uh, that they can afford, that they have access to, that works on their condition. You know, so I'll be I'll be following up with this constituent this morning. But the way that we left it yesterday was, I don't have my medication, and I've been told I'm not going to get it. And so, all the symptoms that she's been able to control for years now right, are, it's increasing her anxiety to think about those symptoms coming back, but also that's not what we need in a time of healthcare crisis to have people not managing their symptoms yeah. so that we can keep them healthy and out of a hospital where they might be exposed to other things like COVID-19, for example. And, you know, Emily and I are coming off of a 24-hour cycle when a former house member, someone that I knew and loved, yeah. um, died from COVID-19. And, and so it, it, it's hit home for me very, very strongly in the last day of realizing that incompetence has, has fatal consequences. Ooh. I mean, this administration stopped being funny a long, long time ago, but now it's this new level of of ghoulish, ghastly realization about what we're faced with. We in America like to poo-poo um, expertise sometimes. Yeah. Like we, mm -hmm. we have this notion that the amateur is better than the expert. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe in some cases that's true, but mm -hmm. we're, we're not what we're living through right now. Yeah, I mean, why is Anthony Fauci the hero right now? It's called right? competence. Right. But what's so interesting, too, is just seeing, you know, like one of the things I really appreciate about Emily Kornheiser is that she always thinks about the arc of a narrative, right? Like Fauci's narrative is fascinating. He was someone when i lived in new york in the 80s he was at the center of like incredible vitriol when the aids epidemic mm -hmm. was first That's hitting right. new york and so the fact that this man has served five possibly six presidents 
he's still there. He's doing his work. He failed he in a previous pandemic. Let's not forget. I mean, the point about the vitriol during the AIDS epidemic was that he was he failed an entire people right. during a pandemic. Exactly. Yeah. And he learned from it and he he's understanding his role in a different way. And he has grown into that. And he's in an impossible situation where he's got to stand on this stage with somebody and figure out a way to contradict them in real time without being completely sidelined because I think innately he understands that the states and citizens across this country need somebody to understand the systems. And he understands the systems that need to be used in order to address something like this. But so we are all flawed, right? And I think that's what people miss about the, the analysis that folks on the left and in the middle give uh, to Trump and his performance, right? That it's not that we don't understand that all people are flawed and make mistakes. It's that he's completely unable to admit when he has made errors in judgment and he doubled down, you know, he'll double down on his mistakes and that is killing people. It's literally killing people. And when I think about what it would mean to be a part of that administration um, and the complicity that you need to have in order to maintain enough of a role to serve, right? So if right. I, you know, the idea that you're doing less harm by staying in the administration and sort of mitigating whatever harm the Trump administration is doing by sort of, you know, being the person like who understands the public health crisis, for instance, right. and can be a clear voice, but the amount of how impossible it is to disagree explicitly, right? Because then you will lose your position because that is not a tenable situation for the president, right? For someone to disagree. And so what it means to walk that line as someone who's trying to mitigate harm and being um, doing the best job they can and how long a person can possibly sustain themselves doing that is really, um, horrifying and interesting, and I think illuminates a lot of other sort of aspects of um, command and control politics that we have found ourselves in for decades, right? It feels at this point in time um, corrosive mm -hmm. at mm -hmm. a very deep level. And I think it's always been corrosive, and this is another one of those aspects of this pandemic that's really helping us see much more explicitly how corrosive um, or damaging so many other aspects of our system are, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I do think there always has been a, a sense that this type of politics has been corrosive. What's different is the level of distrust that Americans currently have regarding the press. And although you and I have talked about this, yeah. and one day we'll do that, that show <laughs> I want to do um, about that. But I think for me, that is the most terrifying because how do we recover from that? Mm -hmm. Regardless of who is in you know, the Oval Office next or mm -hmm. five years from now or 10 years from now, we will be paying for this lack of trust um, of basic facts and information and the people who deliver it. Mm -hmm. And that troubles me probably more than, than anything because if there is if essentially we have lost any sense that there is objective truth, 
how do we govern responsibly in the midst of that? Yeah, absolutely. You, you completely lose any touchstone or common ground yeah. to at least get some footing on. Yeah. And the people who are um, navigating sort of that balance between politics and policy, right, that yeah. we're seeing play out on the national stage, um, don't ever have the touchstone of the truth that the media is continuing to pull the thread on, right? Because yeah. you don't yeah. ever know if the um, if the confusion that's being spoken about politically is ever going to be called out, if the media is not available for that. And it's one of the things that I've really been appreciating in Vermont through this process. Um, mm -hmm. We've seen really strong media presence. We see, you know, Vermont diggers unionizing. Um, mm -hmm. We're seeing the commons really, you know, step up and mail some, you know, and the community step up to support that, you know, mail an issue to everyone in Wyndham County. That's really exciting. Um, Thank you. And we're seeing a pretty decent collaboration between the administration and the legislature. Um, still, you know, a little tension around who's going to lead in each situation, absolutely, and who's going to sort of, you know, lay the truth on the line first. But it does seem that more truth is being laid on the line more regularly here, and I really appreciate that. Mm -hmm. You know, I was, I was reading some essays yesterday from Rebecca Solnit, and one of the um, the issues that I've been so curious about is how stories get told mm -hmm. in the midst of crisis. And so she has a series of essays that she wrote looking at uh, Hurricane Katrina and how it was covered at that time and what was missed. And it got me thinking about how, how will this story be told and what will be missed? And one of the things that gave me a lot of hope is she, she talked about when she first looked at how Katrina was covered and how people of color were portrayed in the media at that time and how the poor were portrayed. And she felt a hopelessness that the real story would never emerge. And one of the things that she um, writes about and, and, and talks about with um, Krista Tippett on On Being, it's a great, um, episode to listen to is that actually people did go back and try to rectify the story of what happened. And so as much as I can feel despondent and feel like, will we ever have the truth about this pandemic? I do feel like there will always be those people out there, even after the fact, who aren't going to be ready to move on, right? I mean, I think that's the great um, beauty and tragedy of the American experience, which is let's move on like we're moving on we're looking forward let like the past is the past you know and and there is a resilience that comes from that but as a historian myself there is so many lessons to be learned and so i was reflecting on that again last night i picked up these essays again and was feeling like we won't actually know until six months, a year or so after we are able to come back to some semblance of, you know, post-pandemic um, normalcy of interaction with each other. But it's going to be, it's going to be the press and it's also going to be regular people on the ground who see themselves as reporters. And I mean reporters in the sense of documenting what's happening. And that's, go back to your 
question, which is you want to feel like you're doing something, right? I feel like I look around this county, there are so many people doing things at this time, both to help their neighbors and to remember what it is this time was about. Thank you, Becca. Uh, in my creative writing circles, uh, more and more people are talking about journaling and how important it feels to mm -hmm. them to kind of document and journal about this this particular time. And I feel that that is so important because I agree with you, Becca, that there'll be a time where once we have, we've caught our breath and we've had a chance to kind of process what we have experienced, that's when um, I think the really great insights will come. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 Um, thank you for that. Emily, anything you want to add before we... No, I think that this is a really incredible extension of these conversations that we've been having. And I thank you, Becca, for adding so much to them. Um, the idea that there are many opportunities, um, both for resilience and growth and um, to see clearly in this moment. And one of the pieces that I think we're really trying to see clearly in this moment is how the nature of work um, has changed and what that might sort of teach us about the time we're living in as well as what opportunities for the future. Um, and so you talked about, I'm pivoting, I'm pre-pivoting you, but Olga, I'm sorry. That's okay. Um, <laughs> a a pre-pivot, I like that. <laughs> I think that's like a very special belly move, but I don't know the French <laughs> for it. Um, Becca, you talked about sort of how incredible it's been to see our colleagues learn how to use technology in a different way, right? Um, that's been astounding to me and I, um, sometimes it makes my heart tremble a little bit to see people learn new skills that quickly and grow yeah. that fast and seem like comfortable and proud from it. It's really, um, and that's true in my, you know, work at youth services, um, as well as in the legislature. So that's been a really incredible for me. Um, the difference in how we're about, we're both about to start voting virtually. Um, we've had committee votes, which is, um, essentially the same. Everyone just sort of goes around and says their name and says their vote. But the process of voting on the floor is going to change significantly, I think, as we do it virtually, especially, you know, um, how cues are shared amongst yes. us. And so I'm curious of how you're anticipating that. How cues are shared? Yeah. So Open that up a little Becca, bit. Explain. <laughs> so, and there are lots of similarities between the House and the Senate and how we conduct business. Um, and one of the ways in which we are the same is that we don't get to speak on the floor of either of our chambers unless we are acknowledged by the person who is running the meeting. So in um, Emily's case, it's the Speaker of the House generally, unless somebody's substituting in. And in my case, it's actually the Lieutenant Governor who presides. And so you have to stand and you have to be recognized. You don't just get to jump in. You don't just get to call something out and grab the microphone, right? And so in a chamber of 30 people, it's pretty easy to see somebody stand up and say, Mr. President, and then they ha you have to be acknowledged. When you're on Zoom, it's hard to figure out. And we, oh my gosh, we spent an hour yesterday getting ready for what we're gonna do this morning, which is our first time remote voting, which is, do we raise our hands? Do we actually stand up from our chair? Do we call out? over the Zoom, Mr. President. 
do we use, there's a function on Zoom where you can have a hand waving, like the little emoji or the thumbs up or the, you know, get in the queue. And we had to really turn that over. What are the appropriate ways in this particular medium to retain some sense of formality? The formality is what keeps us more civil towards each other. So mm -hmm. in the Senate, uh, we cannot say, Senator Benning or Senator Sears. We have to say the junior senator from Caledonia or I am the junior senator from Wyndham County. Mm -hmm. And it gives that distance that it's not about me, the person, it's about the people I represent. I represent Wyndham County, I am speaking for them. And so we had to go through this whole <laughs> debate about what was the most appropriate way to get attention. And so, on, so there's that level. And then there's the level of, we don't usually have any technology in the Senate chamber at all. We're not allowed to have phones, cell phones, we're not allowed to have computers. There's never been a monitor used in there, you know, to, to conduct our business. And now the Lieutenant Governor is gonna be looking at a screen with all of our pictures on it through Zoom because we in the Senate decided we weren't comfortable remote voting just through audio, that we wanted people back home to be able to see each of us in our faces and see us say I. Mm -hmm. And it's gonna be interesting to see how the House is able to deal with that because with so many more members, that gets really tricky. So um, we're, and so we're actually using um, voting software where we're gonna have to like click in a yes or a no when we're voting, because there's no way the sort of um, chorus of eyes and the nuance around the chorus of eyes could carry forward on a computer. Right. What I, what I'm missing and I'm curious about is that part where you think about standing up to say something and then you right. look over at your colleague and you see that they're on the edge of standing up to say something and you think, hmm, I think maybe better for that person to stand up and say something. Or they look to you and say, oh, maybe better for Senator Ballant to stand up and say this. People will listen to her more. And so that side eye, that's the cue I was talking about. Um, yes, or even the side, side eye from the speaker that like, I think maybe we should be done with this debate now. So you stay in your seat. Um, <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yes, we talked about that actually because the Lieutenant Governor was saying, well, what I'm gonna do is I'll be able to see people virtually who say they have something to say and I'll just keep a list of the order and I'll call on these people. And another Senator said, I understand why you want to do that, but that actually is not helpful because of the exact reason that Emily just said, what if someone says something and you realize, you know what? I don't actually need to speak. They said it better than I did. And so that every time you see those people asking to speak and for him, it's got like, every time it's got to be a clean slate. Like, do those same people still want to speak? Maybe not. Maybe the pro tem. So in our chamber, generally, if the pro tem speaks, that's the end of the discussion. You are not supposed to speak after the pro tem. They are summarizing what has been said. They're driving home the point. They're essentially calling for the vote. And those are and so, implicit norms. That is not like part right. of the official legal rule. rules of the body. And we have the same no. implicit norm. Like Right. Mm -hmm. And, and so I'm very curious 
say, okay, at 9.30, we're going to be doing this thing. And, <laughs> and then there were still some people who couldn't figure out mute. So we'll see. We'll, <laughs> we'll see what we hear. Well, you know, this, this process has been really fascinating for me as someone whose job is to stand up for things like the First Amendment and open meeting yeah. rules and open document rules. Um, because one of the things I've been very impressed with is how quickly the legislature, House and Senate, have pivoted in so many ways to respond to this crisis, whether it's been yeah. the unemployment insurance, whether it's been remote voting, whatever. And that's really impressed me. But one thing I, because, you know, when you're a journalist, you're always just a little bit cynical. Um, one of the things that's, that's on my radar, too, is what's, quote unquote, normal now? Right. What needs to change for the time being? And what do we want to make sure doesn't come back with us on the other side yeah. of this crisis? Either mm-hmm. things that we've been doing for years that don't need to be done or things that have been done well that we should keep doing well, like open meetings, open documents, people's right, right. to know, um, right. that we don't want to get scuttled um, in the long term. Mm-hmm. That's right. And and so I'm curious for for Becca and and Emily both, what were some of the conversations around how do we preserve uh, the people's right to know and access while we're we're also trying to make sure we respond to a crisis? Go ahead, Em. You want to start? Oh, sure. Um... One thing that I have really been excited by in this process is the fact that all the committee meetings are now live streamed on YouTube. So for one, I feel like I have greater access to a lot of committee meetings because I can watch them at a different time of the day rather than while I'm in committee. That's and a really so that's point. been incredible. Yep. And I can watch them without people knowing I'm watching them. Um, so that's also very helpful in some ways, right? Um, that someone can learn about an issue, be present in it with an issue, but not have other people know that they're interested in that particular issue until they're ready for people to know that they're interested in that issue. And I think that's useful for journalists and legislators and lobbyists alike. Yeah. What is difficult is sort of the flip side of that um, and also has a lot of opportunities. So in our committee rooms, many less people will fit in the room than might be able to watch something on YouTube. But when someone is sitting in a room present, you're aware of them being there. You're aware that they care about an issue, um, at least for myself and I think for Becca, I'm very aware of like whatever energy they're throwing at me around the issue. So even though people aren't speaking, I'm often quite aware of people's perspective on a particular track of testimony. And so in some ways that's very relieving in that um, advocates and lobbyists are much less present in the legislative process than before. Hmm. Um, and it's troubling because I think advocates often bring the, a voice of a constituency that might not be as represented as it could be in the halls of government. And so that's one aspect of just even the YouTube um, testimony that I think has pros and cons to carry with us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I agree. And I think what has been so clear from listening to my colleagues across uh, the state house in both chambers is that we wanna make sure 
and we figure this out in a way that the press absolutely has access to all the work that we're doing. And so it is, it's an adjustment for some people who are used to being a little bit more snarky, a little bit more snide. And there's something that is lost when you're doing that in a smaller, more intimate setting of a, um, a committee room where if somebody teases me and it might be seen as biting, but if you're in the room and you see my reaction and you know, oh, actually this is just the relationship that I have with this other Senator and it's not personal. We like, we razz each other. That is lost on the phone. And mm -hmm. so before we were doing Zoom, we were doing conference calls and there were a couple times when I was contacted uh, because I'm the majority leader in the Senate, I was contacted by people who had been listening to the call saying, it seemed like when Senator so-and-so said that to one of the witnesses, it was disrespectful. Like what's going on there? And so it is, it gives you a particular window into what's happening. But as Emily said, you, you, you miss a lot of the, the nuance and you miss the gestures and you miss the, the side eye kind of thing. Emotional context. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, emotional yeah. context and, and relationships, just generally relationships. And so it is, it is gonna be interesting when we emerge on the other side to go back to having um, us then back in these rooms, you know, these very small little fish bowls after, you know, a couple of my joint rules calls last week uh, at the beginning of this crisis had hundreds of people listening in on conference call. And it was a different urgency around information. I mean, that's something else that we can talk about what this has highlighted for me that in those early days, people just wanted more information, period. Everything felt so out of control, just careening widely out of control. And I realized that the best service that I could do to my constituents was just information. Whenever I had information, that was the best and most valuable commodity that I had. It wasn't even help necessarily in those early days. It was just being a conduit for information. And I think that's been a, that's been a real gift for me to have that insight is that a lot of times, even though my constituents need help from me, Sometimes the very first step and what they're really looking for is just give me the information that you get to have because of where you sit that I don't have. And that that's going to change the way that I do my job going mm. forward in a really important way. That stuff that I take for granted, like, oh, nobody really needs to know about this or wants to know about this or this, this minute detail. And I realized, no, actually, there are people who, who need that information for reasons I can't even imagine because it connects to some work that they're doing back home. And so we're all figuring this out. I was writing my column this morning, so I write a weekly column and I was writing about the stages of competency, right? And you start from unconscious incompetence. You don't realize you're incompetent, right? <laughs> Which is like, listen. is that the same as ignorance is bliss? <laughs> kind of, yeah, it is. <laughs> And then you move from that into conscious incompetence when you realize, oh, wow, there's some stuff I really don't know and I don't know how to do this. And then it shifts over time to this conscious 
conscious competency. Like I'm working hard and I've got it now. And that's, I feel like we are shifting as a legislative body towards conscious competency about how to use the, these different tools. And then at some point, probably just about the time that the pandemic is winding down, we will get to unconscious uh, competency where we're just doing our work and this is feeling natural. And then we're gonna have to go back to learning it all over again. And um, as exhausting as that is, it's also kind of exciting. Mm -hmm. I love to see how inventive people are. So. Yes. So speaking of a place um, and aware mm -hmm. that we're running out of time, a place that I think a lot of people are feeling um, a great vast unknown regarding information is folks who are in a very sort of different employment situation than those of us who are learning those new skills um, to do our work. And that is the 20% of working Vermonters who have applied for unemployment in the last mm -hmm. month. Um, and how, how incredibly difficult um, that process is. And I think that the process of applying for unemployment is arcane and confusing, um, even in, when there's in, only 10 claims a week, right? And like in, in normal times. In every times. state. In every state, yes. In every state. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and we have known for the last 15 years that we need to update our Department of Labor software. Right. And paying for technology is expensive and incredibly unsexy thing to do. And so we have put it off for 20 years um, because we have limited resources. And now it's now here we are. And what I see um, is a lot of incredibly scared people who have no idea if they will ever get any of the money due to them into their bank accounts. Right. So I want to say just because I'm I'm conscious of the time and I have to go get ready for this other call. I want to tell you both. And after I get off, Emily, maybe you can give all of the details. We're actually on the, the joint rules committee call today. We're going to have Commissioner Harrington on from Department of Labor to talk about what has gone wrong and how they're going to fix it. Mm -hmm. And so I just wanted to make sure people knew that it's at four o'clock today. Uh, we've had about 70,000 Vermonters apply uh in two weeks and and in that time generally we we only have 500 to 600 claims and we've had 70,000. and so there have been things that haven't gone right because of the sheer volume and there are other decisions that were made that didn't help that situation so um i'm going to leave you to talk about that a little bit more um, I'm just, I see, I see people texting me saying, we need you to register to get on this call. So I have to go. Thank you so much for the Thank invitation. You. Both of you. I always love to talk to you. Same Thank here, you. Becca. Thank you so your much time for in the joining Senate. us. We'll see what happens. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye. Now we're realigned side to side. Yes, we are. Hello again, Emily. If anyone's Hello, just tuning in, you are listening to the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW 107.7 FM. And we were just talking with Senator Becca Ballant. So Emily, um, yeah, I just received some information from the Department of Labor that for the most recent filing week, they received approximately more than 22,000 filings. This time last year, that same week, the, the year before, they had received just over 500. Mm -hmm. 
So it just kind of get, puts into perspective just how intense uh, the labor and force is. To add to that perspective, there are also a lot of Vermonters that are trying to file and can't. Lots and lots and lots of Vermonters. So it's even, um, yeah, I think the number might even be higher than that. So so what, what are um, some of the things you're anticipating uh, the Vermont Department of Labor needs to change or that they're working on? So um, some of them are just capacity issues. So mm -hmm. people are calling and can't get through and they have been adding more and more and more call volume. They were tr basically have borrowed capacity from almost every call center in the state. Um, EVT, Green Mountain Power, like partners you wouldn't even quite think of who happen to have sort of call center capacity because of the way they do their work have loaned call center capacity to the Department of Labor. Wow. Um, but applying for unemployment is a fairly complicated process. And so people need to be trained to support people doing that. Yeah. And so there's that. There's just people not being able to get through when they call. Um, and that call volume is exacerbated by the fact that people don't understand what they're doing because there isn't clear information about the process up on the website. And that's something that state government, um, especially benefits eligibility, is sort of famous for, mm -hmm. that the language is very um, insider mm -hmm. rather than explicit about how this actually works um, and what the process looks like from an outsider to understand. And so there's that piece and that they're working on. They're adding call center capacity and they're actually have decided to outsource all of the call center, um, which I have my own concerns about. Um, so there's that piece. There's um, the website, which they added a sort of entry form onto to sort of just get people registered in the system. But that, um, was so quickly added that all it does is sort of just add someone's name and social security number into the system. It doesn't start them on the benefits eligibility mm -hmm. path. Mm -hmm. It just says, okay, we know you exist. Um, and I think that was also very confusing for people because they didn't know what happened after they put their name in there. Right. There was a technological snafu, which I think a lot of people feel like is just happening to them, but is happening throughout the state around social security numbers not being recognized, hmm. which creates a like mad feedback loop um, that is really hard to ever pull yourself out of. Um, there is people who were self-employed who were worried that if they didn't get their names into the system now, they would never be able to get their systems names into the system. And so there was a lot of people who were self-employed who were applying even before they were eligible. Mm -hmm. um, and so it is not entirely clear how many of those people are, how many of those people's um, rejections, which sort of happened by default, um, are going to be able to be carried over into the new system now that those folks are eligible or whether those folks will need to reapply. Um, and that communication has not been shared clearly. Um, those are the biggest pieces. And then there's the fact that in order for someone's actual eligibility to be figured out, you need to look at past employers, you need to look at benefits history. And there's just a lot of ways for significant human error and time delay in that process, um, especially since so many employers have shut down their businesses temporarily. That's why we're in this situation. Those employers might not be available to answer the questions from the Department of Labor that they're being asked. And, and so, let's also remember that on top of this, we are dealing with a population that is more stressed than usual dealing with more uncertainty than usual and um, 
everything's being created fresh. Yes. Yeah. You know, and that is all really hard. That for is everyone. all very And hard. it's really hard as, you know, um, it's really hard to counsel someone to have patience and trust in a process that they have had no evidence in their lives to trust or be patient about. Um, for every other benefits eligibility situation I've ever counseled anyone about, whether that was health, health insurance, food stamps, welfare, whatever it is, um, usually the advice is be persistent, keep on calling, ask to speak to a supervisor, make sure you understand all the paperwork that they have in front of you. Um, keep on pushing, pushing, pushing. Um, that is not, um, that is just further breaking the system right now when people do that. Um, and so we really see this balance between the needs of the individual to get immediate satisfaction for themselves and the needs of the whole for the system to work and be able to catch up with itself because they are catching up. They genuinely are, but yes. they're not catching up fast enough for anyone to be satisfied because everyone is scared and they don't have a paycheck. Yeah. Um, and the and I'm just so stop. hopeful and excited that people are actually are going to have a paycheck and that's like the extra, extra $600 in benefits is, might actually meet people's financial needs in a way that actual usual unemployment benefits don't. And that's one of those lessons learned, like maybe we need to up the amount of unemployment benefits that people get so that they can feel stable while they're seeking a new job or being at home. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm so hopeful about like what this means for how people's needs will be met when their needs are met and what it means about how we know we need to transform our system that um, it takes a moment for me to recenter myself in the absolutely legitimate and significant fear and panic that people feel when the system isn't working right away. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the hope I have for this process is, you know, we have people who are applying for benefits who perhaps never had to. And so we're having a segment of the population access mm. this for the first time. I love and that part too. I do. I think it's going to change people's empathy levels for starters. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think it's also going to change the system for the better mm -hmm. in the long run. Because, you know, we've had a narrative in for decades about the people who apply for welfare and why they apply and who they are and what that means about them, which has not been true on so many levels. And mm -hmm. now we have people who maybe never had to be part of that narrative mm -hmm. in the system, seeing how it works or doesn't. Um, and I think that's going to change conversations and understandings for, for a long time. I agree. And there are other ways that this change in how we work or don't work um, is going to have those ripple effects. So um, people who are, you know, attempting to school their children at home, um, right? I've seen a lot of um, deep love, compassion, and appreciation for teachers mm -hmm. who have been some of the most vilified members of our community for a while now. And so that's been amazing. Um, and I also see this incredible appreciation for you know essential personnel essential yeah. workers the people who are really holding our communities together who have historically and still been paid terribly mm -hmm. um and had really stressful working conditions and so i hope that we can move beyond the applause and gratitude to looking at workers rights and compensation um mm -hmm as next I, steps in this yeah i agree because i think one thing this is highlighting for us 
this pandemic is, you know, there's been a number of us who could adjust our work and work mm-hmm. from home and do what we needed to do. Um, but I think this is, and, and some of those changes may stay. We might see more remote working in the future, but I think it's also highlighting for us the jobs that can't change. Mm-hmm. Grocery stores still need to be staffed. Things still need to be transported. Um, that, that's pretty much not going to change. Mm-hmm. Um, even if we do more things like Instacart or, or things like that, someone still needs to be part of that, that chain. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw a really fun um, meme because there are, I mean, we have a lot more people being creative on social yes, media. Yes, we are, lately. which I love. Um, <laughs> I am not one of them, but I'm excited that people are. And it was really like we have a new class divide and it's people who are putting their lives on the line every day to go work because they have to. People who are on Zoom and people who are unemployed. Mm-hmm. And then there's also like, and then there's the 1% um, who have essentially, you know, the global 1% who have spread this disease all over the world. But. Because they're the ones who can afford travel and airplanes. Yeah. Because, (laughs) you know, the global, you know, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Without regard to other people's, you know, safety or comfort. Mm -hmm. So. But below that, what we see is these really like three different, very different places that people are operating from right now with completely different experiences of a global crisis. And that's so interesting because when we look at other global crises, um, September, you know, 11th, which was not, you know, or Hurricane Irene, it had, it impacted people more similarly than I think this particular pandemic does interesting well well yeah excuse me because i can see what what i think you're saying is you know with this pandemic the access to resources whether that's a job whether that's a computer whether that's the internet whether that's unemployment benefits um really makes a difference in how you you weather it Mm -hmm. Yeah. Where with Katrina, everybody got their their windows blown in mm-hmm. who was in the path of the hurricane. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, the resource... everyone got trapped in their house if their road was blown out, right? Right, right. Um, the access to resources came after the hurricane mm-hmm. blew back out to sea. Mm-hmm. Interesting. But right now, some of us have to work and some of us can work and some of us can't work. Mm-hmm. Um, very good point. You know, one thing I keep sitting with, um, I'm going to go a little woo-woo for a minute. Okay, everybody, put your seatbelts on. The woo-woo it's is starting. It's Wyndham County. That's what we do. <laughs> go for it. So as folks know, I, I also am a, a feng shui practitioner. And one thing we do in in the in the um, Bagua school that, that I study is we do look at uh, – the five elemental system and and each year has its own animal and set of elements and the theme for the past few years dog pig rat we're now in rat has really been about authenticity and integrity these have been some of the themes um and and being very clear about what we will and will not 
um, tolerate in the sense of personal behavior, but also the structures and communities that we we live in. Mm-hmm. And and the reason I'm I'm thinking about that right now is, you know, the according to kind of that that elemental philosophy the big question has been are you willing to tolerate any longer toxic power structures are you willing to hang on to systems biases um privileges that no longer serve you or the people you love or your community as a whole um, and it just feels to me like this pandemic and some of the things Becca was saying about uh, how the federal government is really not serving the needs of the states right now mm-hmm. just feels like those issues highlighted as if, you know, here's the big billboard. Here's the toxic narcissistic structure, people. Mm-hmm. Is this still a corrosive system we want to hold on to? Do mm-hmm. we still want to say, because, you know, what you were saying, Emily, about working for the admit the Trump administration and if you are someone who's trying to balance um towing the line so you could still do some good work but being in a system where you can't disagree mm-hmm. you know how many of us have worked in workplaces like that where we have an incompetent boss or we have a cruel boss and we're just like well he's the boss she's the boss mm-hmm. so i just have to put up with it mm-hmm. um you know, and I just feel like, or, or my hope for this pandemic is that more of those corrosive systems won't be able to survive. I'm hoping they well, go down with the ship. To follow your um, woo-woo trail, I, <laughs> the essence of this pandemic is that one gives up sociality in order to protect others, not to protect oneself, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so it is, in some ways, the opposite of a narcissistic power structure. Um, And at the same time, we're seeing a glorification of the command and control. We are um, really appreciating um, strong male leaders um, in a lot of ways um, who have been, who are sort of stepping up to say what is okay and what isn't okay. Mm -hmm. And so there's some, you know, slightly scary tendencies in that appreciation. Um, it's really shocking to see people appreciate Cuomo so much. Um, I find that very, like, just... Um, Competence is the new excellence. Yeah, and it's like, it's some pretty bare, like, it's not like really high level competence. It's like pretty <laughs> middle level competence, you know? Um, it's not talking about like a new vision for our communities where people's needs are met and like, a you know, a plan for that, sort of like, you know, Elizabeth Warren competence. Mm-hmm. Um, so, it's really interesting how we as, you know, community members as individuals find ourselves when we're scared gravitating towards um, the leadership of others to solve problems and how we can also see the need to be in community and care for others simultaneously, like these incredible mutual aid networks that we see cropping up um, and this acknowledgement and appreciation for essential workers. And so I think those two, that balance is gonna be something that we're really calling forward. And I think what you're saying about the authenticity is a really incredible tool for us to at least be naming those Mm -hmm. things when we see them. 
I hope that when this uh, immediate pandemic ends and there will be a catch up time afterwards where, where we just kind of need to resort and, and figure out and catch up uh, from this, this time of basically shutting down. But when, when we're, we're kind of feeling the ground under our feet again, I hope organizations, and I include the legislature in this, take some time to really kind of go into retreats Mm-hmm. and say, what did we learn? Mm-hmm. What worked? What do we mm-hmm. ne- need to let go of? And what can we change for the better mm-hmm. to not only be resilient in a pandemic, but resilient and more resilient in everyday life? Um, I, I hope we all take take time to do that. Me too. And I actually, um, I'm hopeful that these new technology tools that my fellow legislators have learned um, are going to enable us to do those kinds of retreats and conversations more easily when we're not in session, um, which is when the real planning work happens. Mm-hmm. And so that feels really good. Even if we can't, um, we've lost the opportunity to have those casual generative conversations during the session, since we're not sort of in the hallways and tables anymore. But I think we've created more capacity to have those generative conversations out of session through technology. And so I'm looking forward um, to starting to engage in those and really appreciate engaging in them every other day with you lately, Olga. So thank you. Thank you, Emily. Same here. I really, I appreciate our conversations because they take me out of just the, the crisis mode of trying to keep up with that 24 seven news cycle, even mm-hmm. though we're a weekly paper, we're still in that. Um, and so thank you for giving me that, that space to process. I I really appreciate it. And so two big takeaways before we leave. Um, The Department of Labor and um, more information coming through there. So the joint rules call, um, the YouTube link for that can be found on the legislature's website um, under the joint rules committee, which is under joint committees. Um, And that's at four o'clock today. And then Senator Ballant writes up a summary of every single joint rules call when it's over and posts that on social media and shares it more broadly if people want to read about that. Um, So really want to make sure people are aware of that and then aware of just that you can watch any committee hearing anytime you want. Um, I recommend doing it in the background rather than the foreground, but (laughs) it is, um, it's very interesting. Yes, it is. Well, Emily, thank you for a fantastic conversation today. And um, we will be back. This is, of course, the Montpelier Happy Hour on WVEW 107.7 FM. We air on 2 p.m. on the radio station as well as YouTube and SoundCloud. Emily, where can people find you if they need to? EmilyKornheiser.org, eKornheiser at ledge.state.vt.us ekornheiser at gmail.com. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. And every Saturday morning at 9 a.m., I am hosting a Zoom coffee hour with um, with representatives Tolino and Burke to talk about whatever people want to talk about that week. Thank you. Well, everyone, have a great weekend, and we will see you next week. Bye.